Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight's is called The uh, Perfect Storm in Italy, Jewish Traders, Tyrannical Popes, and the Counter-Reformation launch a holocaust of Jewish books and manuscripts, and you'll see what I mean in a second. I left off last week, right? didn't I? in the middle of a story, because this is a continuous tale, it's like a movie, and um, you had this Pope and that Pope and all that, and actually, when we left off last time with uh, Leo X and Clement VII, uh, before I'm done, you're going to be a big expert in all the Catholic Popes, at least in the 16th century. The, uh, I'll get you, get you a 10% discount at certain stores. Anyhow, the, uh, in Highland Town, uh, <laughs> But it's important that they are actually very important Jewish histories, whether you like it or not. The Jews lived in a Christian, in a Christian Europe, uh, subject to the rule ultimately in terms of theology of the Catholic Church. Uh, never forget, the Jews lived uh, on sufferance and because they were of service, and that was the rules of the game. We didn't have a country of our own, and therefore, you got to make the best of it. In that case, it matters a whole lot whether they have a good Pope or a bad one which we define as, is it good for the Jews or not? Like the Babe Ruth story. Not a question of whether he was a holy person by Catholic standards. Not a question of whether he was honest or corrupt or all that sort of thing. We do not have the luxury to get involved in that. If you're Jewish and you're living in the 16th century, there's only one question that involves you, and, and, and that's the real question. Um, and so we saw that a kind of perfect storm in a positive way a series of events came together mm, in the first half of the 1500s, or at least, to be very exact, because that's where we're going to be tonight, um, up to 1534, 1535, because you had uh, four popes in succession who had other things in their mind than bothering the Jews. They had a full plate of uh, the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, uh, Julius II, the guy with Michelangelo fighting all those wars you saw last week. I showed you the movie of him as a general. You have uh, Leo X, the Medici, and followed by his uh, cousin, who was Clement VII, another Medici. The Medici family, by definition, are the ones that are friendly to the Jews for a complex variety of reasons. And so you had a period of 30, 40 years in which, in which uh, you had somebody sitting on the throne of St. Peter in charge of the Catholic Church, and one of the m more important kings of Italy, because remember, during the period we're talking about, the Pope, in addition to being the head of the Catholic Church, wears a second hat, and that is he's a king of a certain country. And it's not a small country, the Papal States, they were called, and runs all through the smack in the middle of Italy. Uh, you know, from one end of Italy to the other, it's not tiny. And there were Jews living in there, and I'll give an example of Bologna, you've heard of that, Ancona, maybe you haven't heard of that. Rome is not the only city there, there's a fair number of cities, the Romagna, and places like that. Later on in the 1500s, the Catholic Church actually acquires a number of other territories through diplomacy and war. Uh, uh, the Duchy of uh, Ferrara, for example, uh, where some of us were not long ago, and places like that. So it wasn't tiny. Um, these popes had other things on their mind than uh, bothering the Jews. And as a result, the old 
uh, strictures against the Talmud, let's say, which we saw arose in the middle of the 1200s, when uh, back in the time of Nicholas Donin and all those other Mishamadim, they ended up burning all the uh, manuscripts, all the copies of the Gemara and other Sepharim uh, in France and uh, someplace elsewhere, which really wrecked the Jewish culture, that had kind of been forgotten. And when you're already in Italy, in the first part of the 20, uh, 15, 1500s, it's the Renaissance, and that means people are interested in, not in new ideas, but in old ones. <laughs> the Renaissance is the rebirth. They're interested in the Greek and Latin stuff, and, and the Hebrew. And we saw Reuchlin and Pfefferkorn, you know, are arguing over the value of old uh, texts. Uh, of course, they're not Christian, that's understood. And, you know, they, they, they're not going to be even Christian validity, but maybe there's stuff you can learn in them otherwise. And uh, anyway, that whole set of uh, attitudes ended up in a situation where non-Jews, and remember, it's always non-Jews, they get permission from certain governments in Italy, particularly Venice, uh, to publish uh, Jewish books, particularly the Talmud and the Talmudic literature. It's a big income. Uh, you're employing people. You're bringing in, uh, you know, it's exports. It's good for the economy. When we were in Venice not long ago, we had a guy who was a big specialist in Venice. She was talking about the fact that, oh, in the late 1400s, after Columbus discovers America and their new trade routes, and Vasco da Gama, uh, the importance of Venice as the uh, sole possessor of the trade from east to west is diminishing, and they have to look to other um, technologies to try to bring in some money also, and one of the very important one is printing. And so this would be a piece of it. And the point I'm trying to make is like this. Is Gaia making the money? Right? Uh, the people actually who are employed on the project are mostly Jewish converts to Christianity. I say it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird to understand this, but these are Jews who converted to Christianity, and they can read Hebrew. Uh, sometimes, if they have a thorough education, they may be able to understand whether there's a mistake on the page of the Gemara or not, or in Rashi. Uh, sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Um, but not only are Gemars being published, uh, 230 titles uh, come out of these presses, uh, of Bomberg's presses, we'll see, and it's the books about the Tanakh and poetry and philosophy and all sorts of things, so you have to know your Hebrew. Uh, in this funny situation where the Jewish public is being serviced by Gentiles or Jews who convert to Christianity and providing with their own books, this is what the Kabbalists call the Gullah Sashchina, if you know a little bit about Luriana Kabbalah, not that you should. Uh, you know, you get it through them. The point is that, uh, okay, it works, because uh, the Pope and the others are not interested necessarily going to get riled up in hurting the Parnosa of someone who's not Jewish. Uh, the economy is benefiting. Uh, people have forgotten what's in the Talmud, or let's put it this way, a Pope like Julius II or Leo X has other things in his mind to investigate whether blasphemy is not in the Talmud. Nobody has respect for what the Jews think anyway. You know, we all know that they're a bunch of rotten vermin and so on and so forth. So what do you expect from their culture? And so leave them alone. Now, um, in 1534, Pope Clement dies, succeeded by uh, Pope Paul III. These are all very famous people. You can see <laughs> these are his two nephews. Okay? And so he's nepos, nepotism, right? That's where the word comes from. Because all the popes in the 1400s made it a matter of policy, always appointed nephew to uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of uh, Treasury, because you could trust them. Sometimes they're nephews in name, actually they're illegitimate sons. You understand? 
uh, which this guy is. Okay? The one with the beard. The, uh, and, and so Paul III is very much in the tradition of the Renaissance papacy. Uh, that's good for the Jews, so to speak. Um, it's very interesting. He's the Pope from 1534 to 1549 in the 30s and the 40s. This, I know it doesn't mean anything to you, but uh, 1530s, the hot-button issue is, will they introduce an inquisition into Portugal? And the answer is they do so in 1536. And from 1492 to 1536, the Muranos, as we call them, actually from 1497, 1536, the ones who are forced by the Portuguese at gunpoint, a knife point, to convert to, to, to Christianity, which did not happen in Spain. The Jews are expelled from Spain, were given a choice. You can stay and become Christian or you can leave. Nobody's forcing you to do anything, but you have to make a choice. On the other hand, in Portugal, it said you can come in and stay Jewish. And then the Portuguese, for certain reasons, turned on a dime and they said, you have to become a, a Christian now. And when the people objected, they did it by, by physical force, or they tore babies away. It was a very rough kind of business. It is out of that group that you get what we call the Anusim, the Converses and the Muranos. They're the ones who remain loyal to Judaism because they're all angry at the way it was done. There are no Muranos in Spain, proper or contrary to uh, popular belief. It's the Portuguese Jews that this happens to. Of course, the Portuguese Jews are Spanish Jews who ran from Spain to Portugal, so it gets very complicated. But uh, you converted. But unlike Spain, there was no Inquisition in, in, in Portugal from 1497 to 1536. So that means that uh, if nobody's looking, as long as you show up in church once in a while at home, you can, so to speak, uh, keep Jewish uh, customs. You can keep Shabbos if you wish, or uh, kosher. Uh, you know, you don't have your maid spying on you. There's not a formal organization set up like a KGB, and I mean that to investigate anybody's Jewish and you know arrest them on charges of any kind of little Jewish practice. And the Moranos are scared to death of this, obviously, and they're petitioning the King of Portugal and the, P the Pope all the way through for 30 years, 40 years. Uh, whatever you do, do not bring an Inquisition into uh, Portugal. The uh, Leo X and Clement VII was opposed to it, and they were able to stop it. Uh, this guy is not as strong as they were, and he wasn't able to stop it, and the result was they introduced the Inquisition into, into Portugal. I'm just trying to show you matters, who the Pope is and how strong and how they feel on the subject and all the rest of it. Let me explain before I move on. There's a basic machlokis in Catholicism between the Catholic Church headquartered in Rome on the one hand and Spain and Portugal, the Church on the other hand. Everybody knows this was done by force. Uh, according to classic Christianity, going back to Pope Gregory in the 500s, a conversion done by force doesn't count. So therefore, all the Jews in Spain and Portugal shouldn't count. At least the ones in Portugal shouldn't count. Now, if you do it by indirect force, then Judaism has the same kind of concept, concepts. We employ this in getting situations. You know, if you do it indirectly or whatever, but actually, that's justified. But if you do a direct force as they did over there, you must become a Christian now, and we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll dunk you physically into the baptism font or something like that, so it shouldn't count. And therefore, they didn't approve of the fact that they're going to burn people for relapsing into Judaism because it wasn't fair in the first place. That was the Pope talking. Only in the 16th century do you get the Spanish and the Portuguese more Catholic than the Pope, as the expression goes. You understand? And they say... You know, the church is in the hands of people who probably have Jewish blood or, you know, have defects in them because they would feel this kind of way. Um, okay, but as far as our story is concerned, the Jewish books remain untouched during the papacy of Paul III. Okay? Uh, he's not going after the Jews particularly. Um, he succeeded in 1549 by uh, the next guy, uh, Julius III is a very important per person in our story tonight. Um, maybe the last of the Renaissance popes, uh, or one of the last ones, a real Sybarite. In other words, 
This is a guy who lived a life of luxury, built a bunch of these palaces and thinks those of us that have been in Rome, you see a little bit of what the palace looked like is this, this wasn't a life of, uh, of self-denial. And um, his, it's, it was notorious that his nephew, I used the word nephew, this was a nephew, he made him a cardinal and things like this. Uh, <laughs> you see how he was attacked by the Protestants for being gay. I'm talking about the Pope now. And so uh, he didn't leave what you would call an exemplary lifestyle from the point of view of Catholicism, but that's not the point, is it? Once again, that's not the question. The question is how did he treat the Jews? Well, um, he's no lover of Jews, but he's not a special hater either. He does issue, for example, this is the guy who's going to burn the Gemaras. But early in his reign, he passes a law also that anybody who forcibly converts a Jew has to pay a, a, a penalty of $10,000, 1,000 ducats. So, I mean, he's obviously trying to maintain the official position of the Roman Catholic Church, not that of the Spanish and the Portuguese. Um, and therefore, uh, during his time as Pope, and he was there from 1549 to 1555, um, during those five, six years, none of these people are young, that's why they don't last that long in the papacy. Uh, they usually elect people who are older, uh, particularly in those years. And um, during his time, uh, there ought not to have been any trouble for the Jews and their books. The Pope was busy in Olam Hazer. The Pope was busy with this kind of stuff. The Pope was busy, the Pope was busy, I mean it, the Pope was busy with uh, the Protestants versus the Catholics fighting in Europe like in England now. It was during his time, for example, if you know your English history, Bloody Mary. That's when Queen Mary comes back and restores Catholicism for a short period to England. And so it looks like that'll be a plus for the church. On the other hand, the Protestants are fighting like crazy in Germany. She's got other bigger fish to fry than the Jews, you see? It ought to have been smooth sailing for the Jews, but it wasn't. And as usual, unfortunately, as we see over and over again when it comes to this kind of stories, the trouble starts with the Jews. Okay? And I can't even say exactly this time with the Mishamad and with the converts, although they'll play a prominent role. And uh, it's a cautionary tale. Um, and here's how it goes. As we saw last week, um, Hebrew publishing, and I tried to go into some detail, publishing in Hebrew in Italy was dominated first by Sansino, the Jew, Gershon Sansino, and then by Daniel Bomberg, a Christian. Uh, Bomberg publishes 230 titles, that's a lot. And uh, he did quality work. In other words, he was an honest businessman, as Jews themselves are writing, why is he interested in this, it's amazing. He's of great service to the Jewish world. He is not Jewish. That's the number one ticket to the success. People leave him alone. He's got permission from the Pope. If you remember Leo X, the Medici Pope, gave him official permission. And they basically, they can publish anything themselves. And these are uncensored Gemaras. I want you to understand. This is very liberal. You understand? Uh, he's doing it in Venice. Venice is uh, taking the money. So therefore, they're not bothering. The, the, the government of the Republic of Venice is okay with all this sort of thing. And... Um, Others were jealous of Bomberg, and the reason is because it's a profitable business. Once you hit the Jewish book market, Jews buy. And even in the Renaissance, where books were much more expensive and rare, because they didn't have like we have today, obviously, but even then, Jews buy. And uh, you print a Gemara, you will sell out. Now think about that. You not only have a market in Italy, and there was a market in Italy, there are many uh, small but very active Jewish communities all over Italy, 
during the Renaissance period. When I say active, we'll see later on, there are yeshivas and schools and scholars and all that sort of business. And then in addition to that, you have it here in Germany and Poland and all these other places. And uh, the truth of the matter is the whole world wants the Bomberg stuff because the best quality. Uh, the Italians are just good at what they do. In the Renaissance, the Italian books even today, we spend a fortune of money if you sell it at Sotheby's because the paper is good and the binding is good and the ink is good, even after 500 years. So it's just interesting. So he was doing okay. A lot of people, therefore, were jealous of him. But Bomberg dominated the field because he enjoyed all the advantages of a Gentile who had earned the trust of the Jews. So it doesn't get better than that. Okay? He, you know, the Gomorrah's he delivers are accurate and well-built and all that sort of thing. And everybody understands, in Catholic Italy, it's not going to be a thing where a Jew can... That's not how it goes. You see? You have to uh, play by these rules, as I said, the Golas Ashkina uh, concept. But Bomberg died in 1549, the same year as, as, as Julius, the, uh, the, when Julius III uh, what, uh, became the uh, Pope. So uh, the guy who had all the smooth sailing and who kind of dominated the field, and by that I mean, if somebody was a rabbi or something, he wanted to publish a safer, I mean, you know where to go to. And, uh, you know, he treats it very much like a straightforward business-like proposition. There are no records of him ripping off anybody. Uh, he made his profit, all the rest of it, and everybody was, so to speak, content. Um, but then he died, and the question becomes, who takes over? Okay? After Bomberg, who takes over? Uh, you'll be shocked to hear that there's more than one person want to get involved in it, and because uh, of money-making business. Now, these are Christians I'm talking about. I'll say for the fifth time, Jews can't do this. They're not permitted by law to do this. Jews now have to publish their own books by this time. Um, as I've tried to emphasize over and over again, that was like a safety for the Jews. That is a little bit of an insurance that the church and the elders aren't going to interfere. So basically, two big Italian famous uh, printers wanted to get the business. One guy was Alvise Bragandini, and the other guy was uh, Marco Antonio Giustiniani. I mean, yeah, you have to remember those names. But you'll see them over and over again. Um, and therefore, you now have... Uh, two houses that are fighting for the market. Um, it's not an unlimited market, right? It's a good market, but it's not an unlimited market. Can you handle two uh, competing presses? The pure capitalists will tell you, let the best one win. It's not quite so simple, right? especially when we deal with specialty market specialty items. Well, the following year, 1550, right after Bomberg died, and these two guys trying to really get into business with, with, with two feet and corner the Jewish market, as they say. So somebody comes up with the idea, in addition to the Shas, and remember, Bomberg had already been turning out sets of the Gemara, whole sets. I mean, think of, uh, I'll just stop for a second. They, he invented, or Sansino invented, the so-called page of the Gemara that's sacred today. It's a ta what you look at an old-fashioned Gemara, you understand? Well, it's not Jews that did it. He says, it's old-fashioned Gemara, it's, it's Italian artisanship, the letters. The Rashi print is high workmanship from Italian craftsmen back from the 16th century when printing was a craft, not a just something you do. Um, it's, it's, it's in addition to being a book with, with words, it's a work of art. Um, you want to match this. How are you going to match this? Well, it's not going to be so easy. But the Bomberg Shas had gone through several editions already. Everybody's very happy with it. Rambam, let's do that. I put out a whole edition of Mishnah Torah and a deluxe one. And, of course, 
she was being Jewish. You don't just want the Rambam, you want the Rambam, the commentaries on the side. Now, if the Rambam was alive, he'd scream. He said, that's not what I want. Because if you ever read the Rambam's intro to his own book, he said, I don't want any commentaries. I just want people to read the Chumash and read my book, and that's it. Yeah, I made it very clear, but we are a commentary uh, crazy culture. Therefore, we can never let anything alone. And therefore, we always pile it on and on and on. Now there are commentaries, I mean this, now there are commentaries on the commentaries of the commentaries of the Rambam. And I know you think I'm saying it to be funny, but it's, I don't mean it to be funny. There are commentaries, for example, uh, I have a home, very nice edition, comes to the Merkevitz Mishnah, which is a commentary on this, which is a commentary on this, which is a commentary on, this, is a commentary on the Rambam. Okay? Uh, and it's a good super commentary, too. Now, um, so what about that? That became the hot button item in the Hebrew publishing world in 1550. Uh, Bragandini, one of the two, Alvizi Bragandini, who seems to have been more honest, he hooked up with the leading rabbi of the day, the Maram Padua, or Mayor Katzenellenbogen of Padua. Uh, you have over here, again, something we were just there not long ago, Italy is a, a long peninsula, and at the top, in the northeastern corner, is an area called the Republic of Venice, which means that the city of Venice, through military shenanigans, over the course of 150 years, conquered a whole chaluk of Italy in addition to the city of Venice. Okay? It's called the Venetia, the Veneto. There are a bunch of cities that were under the control of Venice. Now, some big wars were fought over this in the early 1500s, which need not detain us here. And uh, the cities that were under Venice were tightly controlled and uh, famous for law and order and uh, fairly governed. So one of the cities, Padua, Padua has, among other things, famous university, still there today. I've spoken about it many times, that Padua was, in those years, uh, maybe the leading university in Europe, either number one or number two. And uh, moreover, it was the only university, for a variety of reasons, which allowed Jews to uh, attend and, and get a degree. Uh, one degree, the MD, but that's all the Jew wants anyway. <laughs> what are you going to do with a PhD in Italian lit in the Renaissance period, you understand? Uh, the Jew is interested in MD. Actually, I'm wrong. There's five students a year who are allowed to go for law. Uh, this is interesting because the Jewish community needs a, a small number. I mean, a Jewish lawyer cannot practice typically in, in, a, in a Christian case. But in Italy, especially in Venice, uh, they don't allow Besmans, really. Um, if you want to do it like in Baltimore, you know, just voluntarily, arbitration, so you can do that. But uh, the Italian states, under the influence of the Pope and under the influence of some of these strong republics, like the idea that everybody goes to our court. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have an argument between two Jews, um, they need someone who knows the Italian law on the one hand, the Venetian law, and the Jewish law on the other hand. So you need a small number of Jewish lawyers. <laughs> so it's five a year. But after that, it's unlimited MD, because that you can become a doctor. There's, the, there's, there's endless, uh, you go through the whole world. The Padua trained Jewish doctors and Christian doctors, you know, served all over the world. Um, so here's a very important town. Uh, like the going do the Jews do, as the expression goes. If the Christians build a famous university in Padua, the Jews will build a famous yeshiva. And the yeshiva in Padua was 150 years and more, a couple hundred years to be perfect. People don't know this, and this was the Volusian of Italy, and I mean it. Uh, you had a, a, a succession of a, a, a father, a, a, a son, a son-in-law, and then his son, close to 150 years, like a certain dynasty, Katzenellenbogen, Mintz and Katzenellenbogen, which were famous names once upon a time, had all the big yichas, super yichas. Um, 
And they set up a yeshiva in the 1400s up there in little uh, Fashtunkin of Padua. No, it was a very hush of a town, as I said before. Uh, he had many boys over there come to yeshiva from all over the world to also go for a college degree, a little bit like uh, Baltimore. And the result was that, I um, know, many famous gedolim did that. I mean, Italy is unusual in this regard. I just gave this talk in Teaneck a couple days ago. It's kind of funny. But uh, many famous rabbis in Italy, you'd be surprised, were college graduates, even though they're big, big gedolim and Ramon and, and, and from and all the rest of it. Italy's different than, than the others. Um, by the time you get to the early 1500s, the Rosh Hashiva and the Rabbi of Padua, and really sort of like the unofficial chief rabbi of the whole Republic of Venice, that whole area, is Mayor Ketzenelenbogen. They call him Maram Padua. Right? And he's related to everybody, and he's a big Rosh Hashiva, Shalos and Shuvis, and the whole world you know, uh, uh, corresponds with him. He's, in other words, let's put it this way, he was definitely among the five, top five or six rabbis in, in Europe at that time, and that was a time when they had some big people. Okay? So this is a very important person. So if you want, he's like a gadol in, in Italy. Uh, but he's got to make a living. And so uh, he got the idea that um, he'll publish a Rambam. Uh, he'll put his commentary on it. This is before all the regular Rambams came out with the other commentaries that we know about. Um, and um, obviously they're based on his shiurim. This is a person, maybe I'm not making myself clear. Padua was all the way up in the, in, 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 in the top of Italy. People go to learn the yeshiva in Padua from Poland, from Germany, from Candia, and those from Crete and uh, Cyprus and uh, Greece and southern Italy, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big, important place. You know, the Jewish community over there is, is, is quite remarkable. And so he's a big person. And so his idea was, let's put out a deluxe edition of the Rambam with his commentary on it, and it'll sell like hotcakes, which it will. And everybody will be happy. You know, let's make a business deal with Bragantini. You know, here's the expenses, and here's the profit, and we'll split the profit however they do it, and shine. So everything was good. Um, you can be sure that anybody, for example, who attended his yeshiva or had been a student of his, of which there are many, and things like that, will, uh, you know, buy it. And besides that, he's a preeminent uh, gadol. By the way, funny, he's from an elite Ashkenazi family. Katzenolenbogen, once upon a time, was like from the fanciest families. And the Ashkenazi Jews traced their ancestry generation after generation. You never know who your great-grandchildren are. These are his great-grandchildren, among others. <laughs> Uh, you got to give it 200 years. The, the, uh, so you, you never know. Anyway, um, so the problem is that the competitor hears about this, right? And that's Marco Antonio Giustiniani. Uh, and he said like this, uh, if this guy sells, they'll make all the profit and it'll kill my business. And so uh, he doesn't want that to happen. So he wants to... Uh, crash the market, as it were, crash into the market um, and make a profit. And so, according to the story, he steals the notes and he publishes his own Rambam with the other guy's stuff and at a cheaper price, which is a low-down, sneaky thing to do. It's called business. Now, I know no one here has any idea what I'm talking about. Andy. Okay. Now, uh, remember, listen closely. Uh, both sets are published by Christians. And they're using converts from Judaism and Christianity mainly as the typesetters, the proofreaders, and all the rest of it. This is the crazy reality of the Renaissance Italy swarm. You just understand this. But the Maram was really upset, and so were many others, by this dirty trick. In hindsight, 
he should have walked away and let it go. Right? Isn't that a rule in life? You know? I mean, I understand how angry he was and all the rest of it, but given the very delicate situation in Italy, just shut up and go away. Um, and it was an extraordinary delicate situation in Italy. And particularly when you talk about the Talmud and the Rambam, this is not what you want to stir up a hornet's nest about. You see? That's not how he saw it. He wouldn't let it go. Um, he figured, this guy does something sneaky, I will invoke my nuclear option. And the nuclear option is, he's the big Rashiva, he's related to everybody, he has big influence in the, in the from world, all the rest of it. His cousin is the Ramah, Ramosha Israelis of Krakow, you've heard of him, he, who is in 1550 busy writing the Shulchan Aruch, among other things. Uh, preeminent uh, rabbi of the age, someone that Ashkenazi Jews in general are going to be influenced by and listen to. After all, uh, we do that today, is that right? Uh, we Ashkenazi Jews, most of us are, not all, uh, follow them all. Why? He's just one person among others. You see, he had that charisma and that authority that just happened that the B'nai Yisrael Yodzin B'yad Ramah, they say, that we, that they follow the Ramah. Listen, some people don't approve of an Erev. There are such sheetas out there. But what they say is like this, but the Ramah says you can do it. So I can't say, you know, I won't use it, but I can't tell you not to use it. That's who the Ramah is. And so he says to his cousin, he says, do something about this. This is not right. And the Ramah issues a famous response from Achuva on copyright law. As a matter of fact, I don't want to get too technical over here. He establishes Jewish copyright law with that response. Because it doesn't really exist in Talmudic times. But of course, the printing press didn't exist in Talmudic times. Uh, if you go by straight Talmudic law, there is no such thing as copyright and there's no such thing hardly as uh, what we call today Hasagas Gavul. You'd be surprised to learn this. Uh, the, the notion of uh, you know, interfering in someone else's business, take it away. Uh, the Talmud seems to be radically capitalist. You, you have a store selling this, uh, you're selling red shetels, someone can sit right next to you and sell red shetels. I said, disgusting thing to do. You see? Only there's, there's a few things. I mean, you can't move in. Someone has a store in the back of an alley, you can't put it in front of an alley. You know, there are very small things that you can't do. But if you go by regular Talmudic law, it's pretty much in a customer market. Um, that's not what the Ramon says. <laughs> he says, no, there's such thing as, as intellectual property and copyright law and all the rest of it. Uh, now, you understand, uh, he's related to the other person, so he's, not, he's giving his own opinion. A tshuva is a responsum. Responsum is, this is my opinion, you, you don't have to listen to it. I, I want you to understand that. We do not have in Jewish law, in Jewish life, unfortunately, unfortunately, however you want to take it, any kind of actual authority. There's nobody today who decides for anybody else, unless you feel like listening. We, well, that's true. We don't have any, we haven't had anything since the Sanhedrin. We don't have anybody who has authority. You just have charismatic authority. That's interesting, right? Long ago, it wasn't like that. You had a base in English, you had a kingdom, you had a Jewish state, you had a Sanhedrin, you had all this sort of thing. After that, nothing. We've been living in total Hefkeris ever since the, uh, the fall of Sanhedrin and that sort of thing. The most you ever had was local uh, government, where you have at the individual Kahila level, and it was states' rights, like John C. Calhoun. Rome cannot tell Bologna what to do. Krakow cannot tell Lemberg what to do, and they wouldn't even try. We can do what we could do in this town, you see? But that's the extent of it. So you have, as I say before, a certain type of chaos um, characterized in the Jewish world, in which case, that's how it is today also. I mean, who's, who's the chief rabbi in charge of everybody? There's nobody. It's who you, who you follow. And if you ask the question, how is charisma 
created, manufactured, whatever, that's another schmooze. <laughs> but it's, it's a fair question. Because we live on, uh, on the basis of charismatic authority. Um, I mean, think about the following. 99% of the public out there, 99.9% of the public out there, is not qualified to rule on who's a great rabbi. But someone, I mean, no, I'm, I don't mean to be funny, you know what I'm saying? No, you have to know all the technical stuff. And you see, you see no, he doesn't know who, who's able to do it. It's funny how Jewish history operates. The masses of people who don't know anything about the subject become convinced one way or another that this person is a great person. That's how the Ramah operate, that's how the Rambam operate, that's how the Rabbeinu Tom operate, that's how the Ramosha Feinstein operate, you know, that's how it is. Who out there, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, who can read, you know, the Igris Moshe and understand what he's talking about? So who's, how do you know it's good? Maybe it's bad. The answer is charisma is interesting in that way. Now, um, anyway, the bottom line was that the Ramah issued his own opinion and, and, and response to him, and he said, I think that this is a violation of uh, my cousin's rights. Uh, that's an illegal thing, in my opinion. And uh, you take it or leave it. Being that he had such great a charisma, so uh, it's a ban on the market. You understand? Uh, so the other uh, edition started to flop. People aren't buying it. It piles up at the bookstore and no one wants to buy it because it has a harem on it. Um, it's okay with me if this was Jew versus Jew, that's Einzach. This is Christian versus Christian. It's a problem. So Justiniani gets very angry. Uh, he figures here, I did sunk in my uh, money. You might say, I guess you did a sneaky thing, but that's not obviously how he saw it. And he says like this, if uh, Brigandini can get a ban on my Rambam uh, by some rabbi, I can get a ban on his Rambam by the Pope. What? You want to play that game? My brother's bigger than yours. <laughs> and, it, and it's true. And so, now, I mean, you, you understand, neither Justiniani nor Bragandini can read Hebrew, uh, nor did they care to. It's strictly commercial venture. And so, uh, Justiniani uh, sends a, bu a, a, a bunch of representatives to Rome. And what he's saying is like this ban the other edition of the Rambam. Uh, why being the other? Why? Uh, old Rama has terrible things in it. It's anti-Christian. It's this, that, and the other. How does he know? Well, actually, Justiniani does not go to Rome. He sends three Mishamadim, three Jews who had converted to Christianity. Uh, one of them, Solomon Romano, very famous, the grandson of Eli, Eli, uh, uh, Levitas. You know, listen, people have uh, children, grandchildren. You know, you never know. You have to dominate. Anyway, the point is. The point is, each one sends his own group of Mishamani to Rome to argue that the other guy's Rambam contains anti-Christian statements and should be destroyed. Now, uh, first it was at the level, uh, uh, let, me, let me be very exact. He said, oh, you, Mayor Katzenelboga of Padua, are trying to horn on my business? I'm going to show the Pope, or my representative will show the Pope, that your comments on the Rambam, which one would think would be basically technical, actually are anti-Christian and contain insulting references to Christian things that Christians hold sacred. Therefore, your uh, commentary should be banned and burned. Now, it's funny because his own thing had the same words, but, you know, you're going after me, I'll go after you. Uh, problem is, once you put this in front of a college of cardinals or a papal commission, they said, well, let's not just look at what the Myron Pado says, what's going on here altogether? And so we have an opening of a can of worms, and for the first time since the 1240s, is reopening the case of the Talmud, and would let sleeping dogs lie, and they didn't let sleeping dogs lie. Until now, that's why I said before, in retrospect, the Maharal made a big mistake. 
You see, let it go. I, I understand, like you understand, how people get really angry and, you know, I, I see. But history is all about hindsight. What can I do? And in hindsight, this was such a delicate situation. You needed the right pope and the right things. And you also needed a lot of forgetfulness and not noticing and, you know, not focusing on this. The last thing that anybody needed was to call the attention of the church to the rabbinic writings again, because then it really revived the whole thing that we saw before for the first time in three centuries, and the results are going to be disastrous. I mean, that's all we need, you know. Uh, at first, the Mishimotim, the converts of Justiniani, argued that the commentary of the morale contained blasphemy. But, you know, as I said before, the Pope set up a three-year process. So from 1550 to 1553, uh, they say, let's read the words of Maram. Now let's say, read Maimonides. And where's Maimonides getting this from? Oh, he's getting from the Talmud. Oh, let's bring that in, too. That's all we need. And uh, anyway, what can I tell you? The Dominicans, the famous order of friars, the historic enemy of the Jews, that's one of the tasks they set for themselves back in the high Middle Ages when they started. Uh, oh, they licking their chops. They say, oh boy, a new trial of the Talmud. Uh, it's in the papal, it's, it's, it's in the Vatican. Uh, we're going to talk to the cardinals. We're going to get them to see uh, what's going on. They lobby very effectively because the Vatican is all about lobbying. Remember who the Pope is. The Pope is a guy with boyfriends and girlfriends and whatever. So he says they lobby to have the committee of cardinals investigating the matter. They should get as a chairman Cardinal Giovanni Carafa, who is basically a fanatical anti-Semite. Uh, he will become the Pope later on with a, a really bad guy over here. As a matter of fact, you'll see in a minute, history regards him as bad. The Christians don't even like him as a Pope. The Italians couldn't stand him. Uh, and he, and he would say like this, of course Sam would stand me, I'm a bad person, that's what he, that's what he said. But uh, the Jews, oh, that's really who he's got it out for. And so basically, thanks for putting Hitler in charge of the uh, commission to study the Talmud. You understand? <laughs> they didn't get a Medici cardinal or something like this, we can, you know, take him into a corner or something. It's, uh, it, it's the worst of the worst. Um, many people appealed to the commission. Very famous, Andrea Masio, very famous Italian uh, Renaissance humanist uh, scholar and philosopher, writes a famous uh, letter that's always quoted. He says, do you even know, you can't even read this stuff. Uh, why are you uh, judging it? And uh, you're not giving a fair uh, hearing. And maybe some of the Thomas offensive, the other parts aren't. They don't listen to him, you know. Anybody who's coming with these kind of intellectual arguments is missing the point. Um, and then, to make matters worse, as I say, a, a perfect storm in a negative sense, the worst possible thing happens, and that is a priest converts to Judaism. Okay. A priest in Rome, uh, Cornelio de Montal Montalcino. Um, this is always a problem for the Jews. It's a funny world we live in. Uh, ordinarily, you say, oh, very good. As a matter of fact, the priest has seen better. Uh-uh. You get it? We, we can't afford it. You get, no, you get them too angry. We cannot afford it. Believe you me, if he would really, the trouble is, let me explain. What happened from time to time was that some priests would get very involved in trying to understand the difference in the Old Testament and New Testament for Christian reasons, sometimes to go after the Jews. Reading, rereading, and rereading the Old Testament, he's, and then reading the New Testament, he starts to say, hmm, this makes more sense than that. These are dangerous conclusions. Um, being, now, if he was a Jew, he was like this. I'm going to close the book, keep my mouth shut, and keep walking. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, not everybody has to know what I'm thinking. But he's a guy. He's not a Jew. <laughs> you 
You see? So, and he's, a, he's Italian, he's a Spaniard. So he said like this, Oh, this is true and this is not true. They have all the courage and the lack of scaredness of someone who's not born in a ghetto. And therefore he'll go to his uh, superior or to another priest or something. He says, you know, I read this and this and this and this and this and the other thing. Oh, boy. And then they'll tell him like this. You shut up and rethink this. I've thought this ten times, and now I see this is the true uh, light and all that. And the Jews in the Jewish community are saying like this. Can you just shut up? <laughs> you know Listen, here's a good idea. Walk away one day. Nobody knows who you are. Go to Turkey. I'm not, I mean it. You know what I'm saying? Do like that. Disappear. Don't blame it on us. Go, go, go. Uh, because what you're interested in finding the truth, we're interested in staying alive. It is what it is. And uh, therefore you have, throughout the Middle Ages, um, a fair number of incidents which go like this. Everything's good, then some priest uh, converts to Judaism, the mob goes crazy and, and massacres the Jews. You see? And I understand where the mob's coming from, like you do. That's why I say the Jews will say, just, just don't, 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 don't do it here. Just say nothing. Maybe some of you have heard the famous story. It's true, not true. Famous story of Avram Ben Avram, uh, Count Potutsky. I know some of you know I'm talking about the Gerd Sedek. Uh, if you remember this, how the story goes, he wants to convert in Vilna. They say, go to Amsterdam. <laughs> no, 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 I'm serious. Go to Amsterdam. I got news for you. In England, uh, when they were let back by Oliver Cromwell, the Jews made a self-denying ordinance and they said, uh, they convinced themselves that they had promised Cromwell, which isn't true, but they convinced themselves they promised Cromwell that they'll never convert a Christian. And anybody over the course of the 16 and 1700s, even 1800s, even the early 1800s, who for one reason or another became convinced that he or she wanted to convert to Judaism, go to Amsterdam. We didn't do it. That's interesting. Even in liberal England. Uh, and there were, by the way, here and there a few nuts that converted to Lord George Gordon and people like that. But, you know, England's not going to do anything. You have it in your blood if you're Jewish. This is something you stay away from. And so this Cornelio de Montalcino, who's from a noble family, is a priest, and he comes out and he says, Judaism is ready. He converts, he circumcised himself. Um, it's, well, listen, Cecil Roth has a story in Mexico City in the 1500s of a, I think it was a Jesuit, if I remember correctly, no less, where he was sent to go and study Judaism in order to find out who's the secret Jews around here. And like all these, the beginning of a Spanish aristocrat, he says, now that I read this all up, Judaism is true. And they say, you're nuts. And they burn him in the end. And the night before uh, they burn him in his, in his cell, he, uh, what do you call it? He, you're going to laugh at this or whatever. He circumcised himself with a chicken bone. Right? No, no, he was that, like that. Uh, and they burn him the next day. And, and, he's, and these guys, you know, they go to the stake saying, I guess I'm ready to burn, no problem. You see? So it's very weird. The problem, though, is that, and why do I say a perfect storm? Here you are in Rome, uh, everybody's questioning what's going to happen with the books. Um, no one has brought up the word burning yet. At the same time, they find that a priest has uh, converted and therefore apostatized, and they see it. And uh, the Catholic religion is only one, rule, one punishment for a priest who converts. You burn him at the stake. Oh, now we're talking about burning at the stake. And so he is burnt. Uh, but at the same time, it's like this. Maybe that's not a bad idea to do to the Jewish books also. And that's what happens. You see, that's why I say that things came together in a terrible uh, kind of way. Uh, the cardinals were put into a burning mood, and finally the verdict is issued around that time 
to burn all the Hebrew books, especially the Talmud, and destroy all the printed copies that exist. Now remember, this was possible in the 1550s. Printing had really just started in a real way in the early 1500s, and Bomberg hadn't gone off the ground until 1520. So it's not like there were a million books out there. Uh, I'm saying this sadly. It was possible, if they really made a full court press, to go and get every single book that was printed and destroy it. Every Gemara and every uh, Rambam and all that sort of things like this. In August 1553, Julius III, the Pope over there, even the mild matter one, uh, he sees the way the wind is blowing and he issues orders to uh, burn all the Jewish books. On Rosh Hashanah, they raid the houses, just like they did in France back in the 1240s, wait until the Jews all go to Rosh Hashanah, because, you know, even the women go for, for Yisker and things like that, um, and uh, chauffeur blowing, and uh, therefore the Jews are not home, and then they come and raid all the houses, they find all the books. Uh, a few days later, um, right after Rosh Hashanah, the priest was burned, and then a few days later, all the Gomorrahs. This all happened in the Campo de Fiori, which today, as you see over here, Ari was, we, were, we, we didn't get to go there this past trip because I uh, had a packed schedule. It's a nice little plaza piazza, isn't that right? It's a place where they have uh, nightclubs and cafes and this and that and the other. It's got a heck of a history, right? They burned a lot of people over there and they burned their books there. Campo de Fiori means the, the field of flowers, you know. They know it was, long ago it was like an open space. Now real estate being what it is, they, they made it into a piazza in Rome. But, uh, and by the way, there's no, until very, very recently, there's no plaque or anything like that. Uh, they burned a famous uh, Christian, Giordano Bruno, if you know who he is, over there, and that's considered a martyr of humanism. And so there is a statue and a plaque of Giordano Bruno. Only very, very recently did some Jew get permission for his own money to put up a little thing that, hey, this is where they also publish some of the Mars, you know. Um, but that's how it goes. They, you know, their history is not ours. This is followed up throughout Italy in 1553-54, and all over the place, in Venice, for example, where they published the books, where they actually printed the books, where it was a part of the economy. They have a gigantic, uh, big fire in front of, uh, right in the main square, in the Piazza San Marco, right in front of the San Marco uh, church. Everybody knows there. that's the main place in Venice, and it's all the books. There's a famous story of a machaber, a famous person who wrote a safer, and then he brought it to Venice, and they brought it the wrong day at the wrong time. You understand? And the whole thing was burned. They had to start all over again. I mean, you just imagine the human tragedy of that sort of thing. But they didn't care. The Escatorio de Bestamia, the executors of blasphemy, was a special commission set up by the Republic of Venice to go after all these books, these heretical books, as they see them, and destroy them. And it goes all throughout Italy, one place after another. It's really uh, uh, terrible. And that's why thousands, literally thousands of books are burned. And that's why they cost so much money today at Sotheby's. You see? You, you, to get a Bomberg shot is, there's like a, just a few of them left. You get what I'm saying? You know, to survive this. Uh, one of them, interestingly, will be found in Henry VIII's library because when Henry VIII was thinking of getting rid of Catherine of Aragon, which he did, of course, I mean, he tried to do it legally. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, right? Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. So he married Anne Boleyn. So uh, how, you, how do you divorce her? The Catholics don't have divorce. So he wanted the tiny Yibum. Right? He wanted to say, well, she'd been married. It's, that's the question. Was she married to his brother or not? Um, and uh, otherwise, it's Asha Asha, Loba Malka Mitzvah. All of a sudden, he became a from Jew. But any port in a storm, and he and Cardinal, uh, what was the guy, Woolsey, were looking for, for something. And somebody said, like this, maybe according to Talmudic law. And so you ordered a copy of the Talmud. So therefore, there's one in England. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I remember 
a, uh, a Israeli professor, I'm not religious, I think, was uh, teaching in the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, JTS. The leading conservative, and across the street is the leading Protestant, the Union Theological Seminary. And this guy, I forget what his reason was, but he just went across the street one day to look in their library, because they also have a Chashua library. And he was here, there, and the other went downstairs, and to his absolute shock, was a whole set of the Bomberg shots. It's been there forever, nobody even noticed it. How it got there, I don't know. He was just like, you can just imagine, a whole intact set. Uh, there's probably three, four left besides that in the world. I mean, I don't know. You can Google it if you wish. But they're very rare, and, and, it's, and it's all due to the fact that they went after these things and they did a thorough job, unfortunately. Okay? And uh, over and over again, one sees the role of the Mishumadim in this. They're the ones who say, go here and get this book. They're hiding it under this place. They're, uh, uh, you know, buried in this and this uh, thing. They, he says it's a prayer book, really it's a Talmud. You know, uh, they're leading the charge, and so it's an unholy alliance between these people who had converted to Christianity and the Dominicans and the other Catholic clergy who, are, who can't wait to do this sort of thing. Now, uh, it is what it is, but it's a, it's a sad tale. I, uh, the teacher in me won't let me forbear to share with you two books, there are many books on this, but the two, two golden oldies uh, that you will, may wish to uh, see, especially if you take the trouble to do this, it's the nine days coming up. But this, is, this, is, this, book is, this book literally is Tisha B'Av reading material. Um, I have in my hand a famous old Jewish history book from the 1500s from Yosef HaKohen uh, from North Italy. It's called Eme Kabocha, The Valley of Tears. I guess the title kind of tells you what it's all about. And this is a nice edition with the kudos and all the rest of it. And he has a whole series of tragedies that befell the Jewish people. But he lives then, and therefore he writes a lot, classic stuff, on Strefas al-Talmud, on the burning of Talmud. He names names. Who were the Mishumas that did this? Who were the Jewish traitors? And who were the guys that did the other thing? And he talks about all kinds of little incidents, too numerous for me to go into now, um, and all the terrible things that happened over there. But uh, this is always a classic. You know, uh, uh, he gets the ultimate compliment because in the Shulchan Aruch, it actually says uh, you're not supposed to read history on Shabbos. And that's because science is science. History is baloney. Um, that's the old attitude. But the, all the commentaries at the bottom say, I guess, oh, but his books are fine. You understand? No, I'm serious. You know, they're full of Musa. And, uh, there's, a, there's a certain number of the old, golden oldies that, that, oh, that you can read on Shabbos. The Eme Kabocha, the Yevain Metzula that we talked about some two years ago, uh, the Crusader Chronicles, anything that's sad, you know, you can, you can, you, you can do. Um, and here, out of an entirely different milieu, is I forgot to mention it last week, is really golden only. David W. Amram is the maker of Hebrew books in Italy, Philadelphia in 1906. David Amram was the Talmud Mubak of Jastro. Marcus Jastro was a famous reform rabbi of the Road of Shalom Temple in Philadelphia, who wrote the famous um, dictionary that I'm sure many know I'm talking about. Uh, this is before art school existed. And... Uh, he really went, he thought it would be conservative, it turned to reform, whatever the case is, uh, he was, he died a very uh, disappointed person, and he had maybe one or two students altogether, one of them was a, a lawyer in uh, Philly, David Amram, and uh, he was ab uh, absolutely fascinated with this, and he writes in the style of a century ago, which is a very nice English, and he goes into the ultimate detail of every single book, without exception, that was published 
Renaissance Italy and who did it and why, what are the scandals connected with it, and, and who did what to who, and who was the Pope and all the rest of it. So if you're ever interested in following this up, these are the two that you want to take a look at. Now, um, as you see, a disaster hit Italy. A lot of piutim, for example, are written at this time over this. Uh, it was a pogrom. It was a pogrom not, of people, uh, not on people but of books. I'll tell you what I mean when I say a pogrom, because it's very important for our story, for this week and next week. Um, these are passions. At 1553, 4, 5, those years, uh, the Italian anti-Semitic passion is in full swing. Dissenters, such as Andrea Mazio and these other intellectuals, they are, you know, sidelined. They're overwhelmed. Uh, the mob wants to see the Jewish books burned. Now, on the other hand, they didn't burn the Jews. Uh, the Catholic Church did not revoke its historic position on Judaism, which is that it's a bad but legitimate religion. It's interesting. We're talking about violence on Aitzim Avonim. We're talking about violence on books. So it's not on the people, but we all know that in the cultural sense, there's nothing more deadly than the destruction of the books because we're people that depends on the books. We don't have a country. We don't have a Sanhedrin. We don't have anything else. We just have our books. Think about that. We just have our books. And uh, that's why I said before that in retrospect, the Maram made a mistake because he should never mess with this Rambam set competition, you know, just let the other guy get away. But of course, he obviously saw things differently and calculated differently. And, uh, you know, Jews have a tendency to think everything's good now, so it'll always be good. Um, whereas, if you're living, particularly in a Catholic country in, in, in Renaissance Italy, you're always living on the point of a sword. I say this in the middle of the three weeks. I say this just before the nine days. Um, even in America, everybody thinks, oh, it's well, it's well, I mean, if you want to be perfectly honest, you're always, in America it's a little bit better. You're living two, two feet away from the, from the sword. But there's all kind of nuts out there. And it is, I mean, I wish it wasn't, but it is what it is. Um, the Jews get together, scramble like crazy. In Ferrara, in Italy, all the representatives of the Jewish Cahillas in February, February of 1554, they petition the Pope with the old arguments, they have a repetition of what happens in the 1240s. And basically they say, listen, we can't do without the Gemara. The Talmud is a basic part of Judaism. Uh, you, you always allow Judaism to be a legal religion. This is a key element of it. It's not some crazy thing on the side. They promised the rabbis and the representatives of the Cahillas promised the Pope not to publish any book or text without the church's specific approval. Moreover, they say, and they, this is where the Haskamas start, they promise that no Jew will ever publish anything without Haskamas, which means letters uh, signed by important rabbis and people like that, giving permission to publish the book, and that will guarantee that nothing offensive to Christians is in it. So the Haskamas really start, nowadays very tough, and you find a rabbinic volume, usually will have a Haskamah, an agreement is what it really means, some rabbi attesting that this is a good book or whatever. Uh, but the origins of it are, we've checked this book over, and it's nothing that's going to tick off the Christians, and that's not anything to laugh at. Um, Pope says, no Talmuds under any circumstances, period. The Talmud is poison. Other books, okay, that he'll let himself be brought in, if they do not contain blasphemies. And that will become the standard of the Catholic Church till the 19th century, till, till the end of its power. Uh, no Talmud will be allowed, uh, Talmud's bad news, uh, but other books, okay, because the Jews say they can't get along without them. Now, in order to understand this, I have to put you, <laughs> it's going to sound funny, you have to turn everybody through, the, you have to put on the glasses of a Catholic. 
right? Because you want to understand how the, where they're thinking. And it's very interesting. Uh, the church has a view of the Torah Shabbat of the oral law. Now you understand, according to basic Christianity, it's all been superseded, so it doesn't matter. The New Testament has put it all out of relevance. But if we are talking about the Old Testament, they understand, even in church teachings, that it's not all just the text of the Chumash, the five books of Moses. God must have said other things to Moses. You get I'll just give you one example. Catholic Church does not contest that the pre-8s is an asteroid. The Jews have been doing it forever, ever. That must be what it is. So they did not deny, even in the time of Jesus, right? He had an asterisk up somewhere. So they did not deny that the Jews had ancient oral tradition of one kind or another. Josephus speaks of this. Philo speaks of this. Another famous old text that even the church respects, not the rabbinic writings, speak about old traditions that are out there in addition to the written text of the Chumash. They understood and they accepted that. And they also accepted the idea that some of this stuff ends up in the Talmud. Therefore, when you look at the Talmud, some of it contains God's words, which is just interesting, okay? That's like a third. Some of it contains rabbinic idiocies, because they don't understand or not. They don't understand when it gets to halacha, as the Jews do, where we have a many over halacha, they have many over uh, theology, uh, so we get all hooked up and worked up over, you know, is you can turn the light on here, you turn the light on there, hot water, cold water, and uh, it, it makes it tie the shoes, not tie the shoes, and jobs them is lunacy, you see? And so one third of the time is just lunacy. So th that's, at least you can leave the Jews alone with it. One third of it is blasphemy. <laughs> Stories against Christians, against Goyim maybe, against Jesus, against who knows what. Uh, so, so that's how they're looking at it. To the degree they're going to be liberal, it's going to be the Jews say, we'll get rid of the third third. Uh, hey, you admit yourself, some of it goes back to Moses' time or something like that, right? Uh, some of it sounds crazy to you. No, <laughs> you know, so it sounds crazy to you. If we want to start, as, as the Ramban said, I showed you that movie two weeks ago, if you want to start getting into which religions are crazy, don't go there. <laughs> you know what I'm um, yeah, not if you're a Catholic particularly, you know, they, they don't, don't go there. And so um, it's interesting these are the negotiations that are going on over here. They're trying to say to the Pope, let it go, we'll get rid of the third third. The Pope does modify the decree, as I said before, in May of 1554, shortly before he dies. It's better than nothing, but forget about Gomorrah's in Italy. Well, what about the riff? What they end up doing, and some of you will know what I'm talking about, uh, one of the famous rabbis of the Middle Ages is uh, the riff, it's called Fasi. And he, he writes a kitzer of the Gomorrah in the, in the 11th century. He lives in uh, North Africa, primarily. At the end of his life, he was in Spain. Uh, I won't call him Sephardi, but I'll call him Sephardi because, you know, you won't know what I mean otherwise. He actually, he only moved to Spain when he was like 80. But whatever, he's in Jewish cultural memory, they consider him a Sephardi. The point is, very authoritative person, and it's, and I think we spoke about this a year or two ago, last year, I think. They, he, he has an abbreviated version of the Gemara, where you cut out a lot of the shako tires, they call it, and you know, get right to the, what, the, what the din is. It's not exactly the Gemara, but it's as close as they'll get. The Jews have no choice. They'll take it. And so this is where you get the origin. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you ever see a regular old-fashioned Gemara, it's really a combination of the way it used to be before 120 years ago. The way it used to be 120 years ago is you'd have something called the Gemara with its commentaries and a separate volume called the Alphas, the Rif. And it looks like a Gemara, but it isn't. Uh, the middle of it is the riff. It looks like the more on the side is some kind of Rashi, and the other side will be somebody like Duran or, or the Mukiyosef or people like that. 
Um, I know it's a little bit technical, but just take it from my point of view, to take my word for it, it looks like a Gomorrah, and therefore it's functioning more. It was actually published by the Italians as a something that looks like a Gomorrah, so that the Jews can focus their scholarly efforts at least on that. Understand? It's sad. Uh, what exactly happened with the, the Gomorrah's We don't know. It seems that the Jews sooner or later got the uh, smart idea of just shutting up about it and say it's hard for us to tell what goes on. I can give you a very famous case. It's often quoted, and it goes like this. There was a well-known rabbi in the early 1600s, Azariah Picho, Azariah Figo, who was uh, I actually, uh, we were in his shul. I got to speak there in May. Uh, Azariah Figo. He is, uh, wrote the, the most famous Drush Sefer, let's put it that way, Binalitim, or one of the three biggies. The Binalitim, Yaris Devash, and Noel Safran. And uh, he was the rabbi of the Spanish uh, Portuguese the synagogue in Venice, high class, very fancy people, uh, very educated secularly, who nevertheless run away from Spain and Portugal and to enter Judaism. And uh, so they're not interested in some beba beba, you know, they want somebody who's a renowned orator and a preacher, and therefore his sermons are models of uh, style and effort. Uh, they were reprinted in the 1800s 50 times. Okay? It was the number one cheater book of Eastern European rabbis. And uh, so Isaiah Figo, earlier in his career, was a rabbi in Pisa in the early 1600s. And it's a much smaller community. And there he was bored out of his mind because the Balabatim weren't interested in anything intellectual. And so he uh, drove himself to publish a very important work on the Koshen Mishpat uh, called Gedule Kuma. Uh, I don't have to go into the technicalities of it. Suffice it to say that he says in his introduction, um, if I make some mistakes, Hey, I only have three, three volumes of the Gemara. Huh? I borrowed another one, a fourth from this guy here, and a fifth from there, and that's about it. So, uh, that's, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So what you oversee is, is, is really a sort of a tragic monument to the effort, and by the way, it's a chash of a sefer. He says, it's a tragic monument to the efforts necessary in that kind of environment to maintain a Jewish culture, a Torah culture in this case, under the most trying of circumstances. You understand what I'm saying? Well, this is how it goes in Italy. You have to do everything but the Gemara, but then it gets worse. <laughs> because the following year, in 1554, that nice, corrupt pope dies, and he's replaced by this Galeria. Pope Paul IV is one of the worst popes ever, uh, by Jewish and Christian common consent. Okay? Uh, he himself said, uh, he was a Cardinal Carafa, he was bad news, uh, he himself said very famously, I do not understand why the cardinals have chosen me. I have never in my life done a kindness to anyone. It can only be regarded as an act of God. Right? So if you think about himself, he was 79 years old when he said this. He was an ultra guy, and he uh, now is full um, venom on the Jews, so the Jews realize like this, maybe he'll burn us. <laughs> it's not time to negotiate about the Gemara's anymore. We have to keep our own thing shut. And he immediately moves, among other things, to do the following. Oh, by the way, yeah, this is wonderful. When he died, uh, they put a poem up. Here it is, Karafa, hated by the devil, and the sky is buried here with his rotting corpse. This is what they put it. Erebus, that's hell, has taken the spirit. He hated peace on earth. Our faith, he contested. He ruined the church and the people. Men and the sky offended. Treacherous friend, suppliant with the army, which has <laughs> fatal him. Do you want to know more? Pope was him, and that is enough. Meaning, and that's what and that's what they said about him. 
You know what I'm saying? That's what they said about him. So uh, he starts the ghettos and many other things. Under him starts the counter-reformation and the persecution of the Jews, big time. Uh, he's very famous. Uh, Howard was kind enough to do the whole thing over here. I won't go through all of it. But this is cum nimis absurdus. The, the other famous doctrine of the church. The first one was called uh, Sikunt Judeus. And as much as the Jews need protection, so we're offering protection. This is the opposite. Since it is absurd and senseless uh, and inappropriate to be situated where Christian piety allows the Jews, whose guilt all they're doing is condemn them to slavery because they deny Jesus, of course, access to our society, even to live among us, we're treating them too nicely there without gratitude to Christians instead of gracious treatment. They return invective and among themselves instead of the slavery which they deserve, they manage to claim superiority. I told you this is the old argument thing that bothered the Catholic Church from day one. Jews too uppity. Supposed to be downtrodden people. Act your part. Play the right role. Reflect your um, worthlessness and your nothingness. And the Jew dresses better than the Gentile. And the Jew has help. <laughs> and the maid is not Jewish. And the Jew lives in a better house than many of them. Get it? This dissonance, well, he, he, the other popes will say like this. That's how it goes, you know. Not him, he said like this. Then we're going to fix it. And we will really come down and no Jew will be allowed to have anyone employed by him who's not Jew. And every Jew will live in a ghetto. And every Jew will be denied the opportunity to go into any market. And they will all have to, and we will enforce it. That they'll all wear a yellow star. And the women will all have to have a yellow shawl over their head. And... You know, this and that, and this, all kinds of things like this. Designed firstly, I mean, I, you, you can kind of read it a little bit on your own. I don't, I don't want to spend all the time reading it over there. But, you know, look what they have. For, in each and every state, territory, they're allowed one shoal, customary location. They construct no new ones, or can they un otherwise? That's why the old shoal in Rome was really five shoals, but they were only allowed one building. You understand? And that was on the site, I believe it's the site of the current synagogue, which was built after Italy was liberated from the church, and the Jews were able to build a big, fancy, schmancy cathedral synagogue, but it's well known uh, that the city said to them, uh, now that the ghetto's over, you can pick a better site. And they said, no, we wanted on the site where the old shul was. But the old shul was five shuls. It was Ashkenaz. In other words, they had to have different rooms. They could only share one building. It's an Ashkenaz minion, a Sephardic minion, you know, this kind of Sephardic minion, that kind of Sephardic, Italian minion, and so on and so forth. Uh, because Jews are only... What's this business that they want to build fancy synagogues? What's this business that they want to dress like us? What's this business that they should have access to the market and do better than the Christians? We will come down upon this. As we'll see next time, the Counter-Reformation kicks on the Jews starting with Paul IV. And for the next ooh, 300 years, it's a bummer for the Jews. Wherever they're under the Catholics, it's bad news. You understand? Wherever the Catholics are, except Poland. That's the irony. Right? For a variety of reasons, Poland is the exception. But outside of Poland, Germany and Austria and Bohemia and Italy and all these other countries that was under the Catholics, Bavaria, oh boy, is a million rules. And they do enforce them. Because we're now starting the period called the Counter-Reformation, where the church is supposed to get its act together and garner the nice old corrupt popes because who the Jews prefer, because if they don't keep their own laws, then they won't keep the laws punishing the Jews. Now it's consistency time. It's bad news, as you see over here. Um, this pope... Uh, as I said before, starts the uh, ghettos, the persecution of the Jews. He is responsible for what I spoke about last year, if anybody remembers, and not that you should, but I'm also going to go about Gracia Mendes, the Parshas Ancona. The, the, the popes, back from the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, had said, if Moranos run away to Italy, they can go and nobody, no, don't ask, don't tell. They will not be bothered about what they were before. 
Because I told you before, the popes anyway held that the whole forcing of the religion on the, on the Jews of Spain and Portugal was wrong. And so, Ancona was the main port on the other side of the Adriatic facing the east of Italy. The whole, not the whole community, a significant part of the community, Spanish, Portuguese, Jews. Uh, they've all run away from Portugal after the Inquisition was introduced in Portugal in 1536, and now they land in Italy, and the Pope says, the earlier Popes, the Medici Popes, Paul III, the other says, come on, do your business in Italy, pay the taxes, nobody will bother you. This guy comes along and he says, like oh, you used to be Christians, and now you're running away. Did you say, but you promised us that. That was the other Pope, not me. And they're burned. Right? And uh, that's what happened. I mean, that's, that's a long story, but they, they, they're burned at the stake. Uh, it's a terrible situation. This leads, if, if anybody recalls, to the famous attempt by that tough lady, Gracia Mendes. Yeah, you see over here, you see? Where is that? It's a tiny piece, yeah. She's going here to Constantinople. She goes to the Sultan. She was a Murano. She was a multi-multi-millionaire. She, suffice it to say, I'm not going through that whole part again, she runs away eventually. The Pope's after her. She escapes to Turkey, and she goes to Suleiman the Magnificent, the Turkish emperor over here, the great conqueror, and she says, attack the Pope. <laughs> right? Here's the Topkapi Palace, the famous palace of the Sultan in uh, Turkey. And she was a very, to say she's a proud Jewess is the understatement of the century. You understand? She is coming in tough, and she's like that other guy. She says, I want blood. You understand? And therefore, let's close that. There's the Sultan, and here's, she is, that's her, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent in this representation. There she is, she's giving him a present, and she's saying, close down the, the Vatican, you understand? Invade Italy, crush the church, all this stuff. And she says to the Jews in the Turkish Empire, uh, hit them where it counts in the pocketbook. Nobody should do any business with Ancona, that'll bust the papal treasury, and the Pope will have to back off. The Jews are afraid to do it. And that's what we talked about last year. This, this is the Pope we're dealing with, Paul IV, the worst of them. And... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one more piece over here of the sad story for tonight. Uh, Parshas Cremona. There was a town in North Italy, like happens in Cremona in, in the north of Italy. And for some reason or another, all this stuff passed them by. For a variety of reasons, in that town, nobody burned anything. There was a famous yeshiva from Yosef Atalenghi. Atalenghi family is a very famous rabbinic family in Italy. And it's nestled not far from Milano. And for some reason or another, nothing happened in that town. So they should look like a haven. They had books there, they had this, they had learning, and, you know, it's, it's passing about. Unfortunately, he tells us, Yosef Akon in his book, uh, the rabbi got into an argument with, this, with the chazan, uh, Yoshua Kantori. Uh, when rabbis and chazan get into arguments, at least, not in Baltimore, of course, but, you know, long ago. <laughs> he says, well, they, it, it was a bloody business, and uh, the chazan goes with a Meshuman, and he tells the church, oh, you got Gamaras here and all this kind of stuff, right? And then they burn everything in Cremona. So they kill the Chazan, meaning the Jews kill the Chazan. All right, big deal, it's too late. And so I'm sure there's a rule about that for rabbis and Chazan, but the point is <laughs> right, that it's there. The, the, only in 1559, thank God, Paul IV was 79 when he became Pope. He's already old. This is the 16th century. So he kicked the bucket after five years. So in, in um, 1559, he dies. Believe me, you saw what they wrote on his thing. They actually set up a statue for him, and then the mob decapitated the statue. I mean, you know, they wanted to throw his body into the river. I mean, he was a real piece of work. Um, the new pope is Paul IV. Uh, 
I'm sorry, uh, Pius IV. Uh, the new Pope of Pius IV, whose last name is Medici. Oh, see? Then the Jews say, I guess, oh, now it'll be a respite, which there is. He's in for five, six years, unfortunately, not long enough. But then they say, I guess, with the Medici, it's a different business. <laughs> now we're back to the old sort of thing. And they form a Congress to go to the Pope. They look expectantly to a revocation of all the bad stuff and it returns to the good old days. Will the Jews be successful? Will they get the right to republish the Talmud from the new Medici Pope? That's something that we'll have to see next week. I just want to leave with a one parting thought. And that is, uh, and this is not some Musash move, this is just straightforward history. Look at the terrible power of Machlokas. Right? And look at the terrible consequences of involving Gentiles in a Jewish quarrel. Right? Like I say, that's not a sermon or anything else, it's just a plain thing you get from the history of the 1550s, unfortunately. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.